207, Beauty, To God All Beautiful, Heraclitus. Chapter 7 presents a sketch of a theory of or within what is generally termed aesthetics, whose incorporation into the structural systematic philosophy, in place of the aesthetic theory sketched in Structure and Being, section 4.3, The Aesthetic World, increases, according to Tapto, the structural systematic philosophy's intelligibility and coherence. The chief reason for the increased intelligibility and coherence is that whereas structure and being draws its data primarily from works by Aquinas and Kant, Tapto identifies as a far richer source of data, Kovacs 1974, Philosophy of Beauty, a truly excellent book that has been almost universally ignored. Footnote, also widely ignored are the many valuable historical works of Vladislav Tartarkiewicz, central among them A History of Six Ideas and Three-Volume History of Aesthetics. Kovacs 1974 exhibits historical knowledge comparable to that evident in the works of Tartarkiewicz, although providing less detail, but Kovacs 1974 also presents a systematic theory embedded within a generally Aristotelian Aquinian framework. End of footnote. As indicated at various points above, the focus of Chapter 7 is beauty. In treating beauty, Tapto confronts a complex technological issue that results from a series of historical accidents. The first such accident is that, although beauty has been treated by philosophers since before the time of Socrates, inquiry focusing on beauty was not identified by name until the 18th century when Alexander Baumgarten termed it aesthetics. The second important historical accident is that the word aesthetics is, etymologically, a far from optimal designation for this area of inquiry. The word is rooted in the Greek word meaning most often sense perception, therefore suggests on the one hand that aesthetics should be the study of sense perception, not of beauty, and on the other that if aesthetics does study beauty rather than sense perception, beauty is primarily and perhaps exclusively perceived by the senses. Because the first of these suggestions is simply misleading and the second at best questionable, the word aesthetics is far from optimal as a designation for inquiry into beauty. As emphasized by Kovacs 1974, an incomparably better term is kalology, quote, which means exactly and literally the science of beauty, end quote. For this reason, Tapto uses kalology, kalological, etc., rather than aesthetic, aesthetics, etc. Consequently, kalological delight is the kind of delight that is a subject matter for kalology, the science of beauty. Kalological experience is the kind of experience that is a, is a subject matter for kalology. Individual subsections, 7.1 to 10, are devoted respectively to the following central theses of this sub-theory. C1, there are times when human beings are delighted by merely becoming aware of specific factings. The delight then experienced is kalological delight. C2, kalological delight can be and often is accompanied by other emotions. Especially when experiencing complex works of art, human beings can, for example, be both delighted and amused, as by comedies, or both delighted and depressed, as by some tragedies. C3. Every facting that has the capacity to catalogically delight any human being is beautiful. Its being beautiful does not require that this capacity be activated. C4. Catalogical experience, the experience of catalogical delight, is distinct from both everyday and scientific calological evaluation in that there can be such delight unaccompanied by such evaluation and such evaluation unaccompanied by such delight. C5. Every facting save God is beautiful to the degree that it is an integral unity of proportionate constituents. If God has no constituents, 
and God's beauty consists in God's being an integral unity. C6. All factings are beautiful, but there are great differences in their degrees of beauty. C7. Factings whose degree of beauty are low are conveniently termed ugly, but ugliness has no ontological status. C8. That factings that on some occasions calologically delight some human beings do not all on all occasions delight all human beings is best explained by differences among those human beings, including differences between any human being on one occasion and that human being on other occasions. 7.1. Calological Delight C1. There are times when human beings are delighted by merely becoming aware of specific factings. The delight then experienced is catalogical de delight. But note, a sub-theory of human emotions, including delight, a theory of affectivity, would be included in more complete concretizations of the SSP's theories concerning human beings within the universe. End of footnote. Thesis C1, according to Tapto, is central to the best explanations of a vast array of human experiences. Although much work in recent and contemporary aesthetics focuses on the domain of fine art, the experiences in which catalogical delight are most evident, most clearly evident, at least include ones of natural phenomena, factings, sunsets, rainbows, flowers, mountains, and so forth. All that thesis C1 requires in order to be true is that sometimes some human beings coming to know any phenomena at all are delighted by that knowledge and not by any actual or anticipated benefit from the phenomena or from the knowledge. An example not only clarifies but stabilizes C1. Once driving through the Scottish Highlands with his family, Tapto's author saw through the car's windshield a particularly striking rainbow. He pulled off the road, as had several other drivers, and he, his wife, and his two children stared at the rainbow. He, and according to their testimony, the members of his family, were, in Tapto's terms, catalogically delighted by it. The single example, this single example stabilizes C1 because C1 is quite modest. Any theory rejecting it would have to hold that no human being ever has been or could be delighted by merely coming to know or becoming aware of any specific phenomenon. Not by any rainbow, any sunset, any painting, any film, any musical performance, not by anything at all. 7.2. Complex catalogical delight. C2. Catalogical delight can be and often is accompanied by other emotions. Especially when experiencing complex works of art, human beings can, for example, be both delighted and amused, as by comedies, or both delighted and depressed, as by some tragedies. As indicated in 7.1, 7.1, catalogical delight is included in Tapto because it is central to the best explanations of why human beings choose to extend or to seek out experiences for reasons other than that they take these experiences to be beneficial or useful to them, or morally required of them. Footnote, reverting to the example above, Tapto's author's experience of the rainbow in Scotland later proved useful to him by providing him with an example usable in various philosophy classes and in Tapto. Possibly, that experience was also psychologically beneficial to him. It remains the case, however, that his stopping to stare at the rainbow is best explained by his catalogical delight in his knowledge of it and not by any considerations of utility or benefit. Back to the main text. The technical use of delight in Tapto's term catalogical delight is, not surprisingly, not found as such in ordinary English. Readers of depressing novels, like many by Thomas Hardy, or viewers of disturbing films, like many, by, many directed by Ingmar Bergman, might well be, as a matter of empirical fact, unlikely to say that they had been delighted by reading the novels or viewing the films. 
but at least some such readers or viewers who were absorbed in the reading or viewing and who continued to read or view despite being depressed or disturbed were, according to Tapto, calologically delighted by the readings or viewings. Their calological delight explains their continuing, continuing to read or view. Again, this need not always be the case for thesis C2 to be true. Some might continue to review, read or view for other reasons, for example, to satisfy course requirements. For thesis C2 to be true, it need only sometimes be the case. Complex calological delight is clarified by examples. What if, as a film ends, a viewer honestly exclaims, that was terrifying, it was great. In most circumstances, of course, it is not great to be terrified, but it can be great to be terrified by a film or a play or novel, etc. Tapto explains this phenomenon by saying that the viewer was both delighted and terrified. Had the viewer just been terrified, had they not also been delighted, then their honest reaction would have been something like, that was terrifying, I hated it. Their watching it to its end would then be explained by something other than catalogical delight. Perhaps they hoped that as it continued it would begin to delight them, or perhaps they were with friends they did not want to abandon. An additional distinction further clarifies catalogical delight. That was terrifying, it was great, could also be uttered honestly by a person who had just taken a roller coaster ride. In this case, too, the person would have been both delighted and terrified, but the delight would not have been calological delight because what caused the terror would have been a sense of personal rather than vicarious danger. The viewer terrified by the film is terrified by the danger to or harm done to one or more characters in the film, and such terror can contribute to calological delight. 7.3, Calological Delight and Beauty. C3, every faculty that has the capacity to calologically delight any human being is beautiful. Its being beautiful does not require that this capacity be activated. In terms relied on in various traditional frameworks, the SSP's theory of beauty is an objectivism rather than a subjectivism. More technically, its theory is one according to which there are factings that, utterly independently of human beings, include among their constituent members of the among their constituents members of the family its being beautiful consideration of the relative merits of objectivisms and subjectivisms about beauty is aided by the introduction of what Kovacs 1974 terms the positive aesthetic fact the positive aesthetic or calological fact is a version of Tapto's thesis C1 one of Kovacs 1974's formulations is, quote, occasionally some people, while beholding certain objects, experience delight, end quote. The structural systematic philosophy's version of this fact, the structural systematic philosophy's facting, qualifies the delight as catalogical delight and speaks not of objects but instead of factings that exist independently of their being beheld by any human being, henceforth I factings. Footnote. It is possible for people to be catalogically delighted by wholly incremental things. Clear cases would include those of artists who clearly imagined works before producing them and were catalogically delighted by what they imagined. See Kovacs 1974, 60. End of footnote. Tapto's explanation of the positive catalogical fact is straightforward. People experience catalogical delight on merely coming to know specific eye-factings because those eye-factings are beautiful. What is the subjectivist alternative? In the case of the example introduced above in 7.1, the subjectivist cannot say that what explains Tapto's author stopping to stare at the rainbow is his becoming aware of, his coming to know, the rainbow's beauty. The subjectivist might suggest that because what delighted 
the author was his knowledge. It was the knowledge that was beautiful. But what made his knowledge the specific knowledge that it was, was precisely its being knowledge of the rainbow. If the subjectivist who has experienced catalogical delight does not identify their knowledge as beautiful, then the subjectivist must hold that their delight is inexplicable, that they just happened to be delighted and that the rainbow had nothing to do with it. But if that is the case, the delight is not catalogical delight because it is unrelated to any instance of merely coming to know. And although there, there may well be experiences in which human beings simply find that they are delighted and are unable to say why, that is not the case with catalogical delight. The subject who is catalogically delighted upon seeing a rainbow knows that the rainbow is the source of that delight. Footnote, to be sure, they might say that what delighted them was the rainbow rather than their coming to know the rainbow, but they would presumably acknowledge that had they not come to know the rainbow, they would not have been catalogically delighted. End of footnote. That the rainbow catalogically delights anyone establishes that it has the capacity to catalogically delight. Had it lacked that capacity, the catalogical delight would have been impossible. But what then of phenomena that catalogically delighted no human being because they were experienced by no human beings? What, for example, of phenomena such as flowers that bloomed during the time of the dinosaurs? According to Tapto, there were, th during that time, beautiful flowers. Just as a food's capacity to nourish a human being is activated only if the food is consumed by the human being, the beautiful flower's capacity to catalogically delight its beauty is activated only if ca it catalogically delights a human being. Beauty, according to Tapto, is this capacity, not its activation, and capacities such as these are full-fledged ontological constitu constituents of factings. 7.4. Catalogical delight and catalogical catalogical evaluation. C4, catalogical experience, the experience of catalogical delight, is distinct from both everyday and scientific catalogical evaluation in that there can be such delight unaccompanied by such evaluation and such evaluation unaccompanied by such delight. Failure to recognize this distinction is a cause of enormous confusion in the philosophical literature. One way to reveal the distinction is by noting that infants normally begin to have catalogical experiences begin to be catalogically delighted long before they are able to articulate catalogical evaluations. Infants delight in being read stories or nursery rhymes, in looking at pic picture books, in hearing music, and so forth is often, according to Tapto, catalogical delight. Catalogical evaluation, on the other hand, is a theoretical engagement that requires one or another theoretical framework that includes vocabulary items not intelligible to young infants. The distinction is clarified by the following example. Bob has come to view a film in the hope of catalogically delighting in it, whereas Sarah has come because she agreed to write her a review to be posted by the following morning. The greater the degree to which Bob's hope is realized, the more fully in the ab absorbed in the film he will be and the less involved in assessing its catalogical merits. If the absorption is extreme, there is no such involvement whatsoever. At the opposite extreme, two things can be true of Sarah. First, it can be true that if she'd come to see the film without having agreed to review it, she would have been catalogically delighted by it. Second, it can be the case that having agreed to review it, she fully concentrates on taking notes that will aid her in writing the review and consequently experiences no catalogical delight whatsoever. A case more extreme even than that of Sarah is that of Iris. Improbably, but possibly Iris, although deaf, deaf is a music scholar specializing in symphonies. Having either developed or accepted a theoretical framework for ranking symphonies as more or less beautiful, 
and having learned to read music, Iris writes first-rate comparative evaluations of symphonies, despite her inability to be catalogically delighted by performances of them. Not all cases, of course, are so extreme. Experiencing catalogical delight of lesser intensity, people can, according to Tapto, utter catalogical or aesthetic evaluations of them while the delight is ongoing. Footnote. Kovacs 1974 recognizes but does not explicitly accept the thesis that this can happen. End of footnote. In addition, the greater the sophistication of, say, a film viewer, the better, as a rule, will that viewer be able to provide a sophisticated evaluation just ha after having been intensely catalogically delighted by a film. But that the extremes of catalogical delight in the absence of catalogical evaluation and catalogical evaluation in the absence of catalogical Delight, or extremes, does not diminish their significance. The distinction is centrally important. 7.5. All factings are beautiful. C5. Every facting save God is beautiful to the degree that is, is an integral unity of proportionate constituents. If God has no constituents, then God's beauty consists in God's being an integral unity. Leaving aside at this point the exceptional cases of simple factings, if there are any, and God, Every other facting is, a, is complex and thus has constituents. Every complex facting is having constituents, necessarily includes as constituents the following three relations. The relation of the facting to its constituents, the relation of the constituents to, to one another, and the relation of the constituents to the facting. According to Tapto, again reconfiguring data whose source is Kovacs 1974, the relation of facting to constituents is that of unifying or unification. The facting unifies its constituents. The relation of constituents to one another is proportionality. They are necessarily sufficiently proportionate to one another to enable the facting to be the facting that it is. The relation of constituents to facting is integrity. All of the constituents required by the facting to be the facting that it is must be included among its constituents. Worth emphasizing is that this notion of integral unity of constituent components um, has the enormous benefit of being able to explain how items, how, how vastly different items, such as statues, paintings, songs, landscapes, and so forth, can be beautiful. Uh, they appear to, many appear to have no attributes, save beauty, in common, yet they all have these three relations. Uh, they are all integral unities of proportionate constituents. An example, relying on a minimally articulated framework for a theory of visual beauty situated within the structural systematic philosophy's framework, clarifies. A given body as visually beautiful unifies or is the unity of arms, legs, head, and so forth. A footnote, as visually beautiful is importantly distinct from as sexually attractive. The viewer who is sexually attractive may or may not be catalogically delighted to some degree but the greater the sexual attraction, the less the aesthetic or catalogical delight, because the more intense the catalogical delight, the more satisfied is the viewer with beholding the source of the, de of the delight and the less engaged in being attracted to it. The variety of uses of beauty, beautiful, etc., in ordinary English is of no relevance to the structural systematic philosophy within which these are technical terms with specified meanings. End of footnote. The human body can exist as the body of the human being only if there are no fatal disproportionalities among its constituents and only if it has all the constituents that are required for its continuing to live and thus are integral to it. After a human being dies, there is often a corpse 
and it will be a more or less beautiful corpse, if there is, but not a more or less beautiful human body. The visual beauty of a given human body as a human body depends on the degrees, one, to which it is visible, its visible constituents are proportionate to one another, two, to which it has all of the visual cons visible constituents that human bodies normally have, and three, to which those constituents are intuitively intelligible as a unity. To clarify factor three, a novelist might conclude that their work had all the constituents, characters, scenes, conversations, and so forth, that were integral to it, that, that it required, and none that were superfluous, and that those constituents were proportionate to one another, no scene too long or short, no character given too much or little attention, and so forth, but that the work was not sufficiently unified, that it did not, in colloquial terms, hang together. The novelist might, in principle, solve the problem by putting the constituents into a different order. One possible case, a deed that had appeared unmotivated ceases to appear so if a conversation is moved so as to precede the deed. To be sure, so pure a case of failure of unity in conjunction with success of proportionality and in integrity presumably rarely, if ever, takes place. But the point should be clear. Tapto explains the activity of the artist at work to increase the beauty in Tapto's sense of a given piece as consistent of work to maintain it, maximize its integrity by including in the work all that the constituents it needs and excluding from it any that it does not. Proportionality by correcting imbalances among the integral constituents and unity by arranging the integral and proportionate constituents in, a, into an intuitively intelligible unity. When the artist, perhaps having consulted selected readers, sees no way to improve integrity, proportionality, or unity, nothing more is to be done. The work is finished. Footnote, to be sure, not all who call themselves or are called by others artists work always or exclusively to produce works that are beautiful. Artist in ordinary English is quite vague, as is, of course, beauty. These vaguenesses are irrelevant to the structural systematic philosophy. Intuitive, oh, end of footnote, intuitively intelligible, used twice in the preceding paragraphs, requires clarification. Following Kovacs 1974, Tapto distinguishes intuitive intelligibility from discursive intelligibility. Intelligibility is discursive when it requires, and therefore results in part, from explanation. The beauty of a symphony, for example, may be made discursively intelligible by a scientific evaluation of it. Having read the evaluation, one who had never heard the symphony might come to accept as true the thesis that the symphony is ex exceptionally beautiful and might be able to provide an excellent explanation of how it is, given the criteria provided by the evalu evaluatory framework that it qualifies as exceptionally beautiful. But that would not guarantee that, hearing the symphony, that person would find the piece to be intuitively intelligible as an integral unity of proportionate constituents and hence be calologically delighted. As suggested above, that person could even be deaf. From the theses, one... From the theses, one, that every com complex facting is an integral unity of proportionate constituents, and two, that to be an integral unity of proportionate constituents is to be beautiful, it follows that, three, CC5, every complex facting is beautiful. Given addition the theses, four equals C3, that to be beautiful is to have the capacity to calologically delight human beings, and five, that any conjunction of factings is itself a facting, it also follows, six, that any collection whatsoever facting 
whatsoever of factings is beautiful and therefore has the capacity to delight human beings. To be sure, with the overwhelming majority of factings, and even the overwhelming majority of factings that human beings come to know, this capacity will presumably remain unactivated. But whereas it might appear ontologically extravagant to attribute to all factings this capacity that, in most, will remain unactivated, the rejection of this thesis is yet more extreme, because the rejection involves some version of the thesis that there is at least one facting such that that facting could not possibly calologically delight any human being who, in any circumstances whatsoever, came to know it. Tapto recognizes no way in which this thesis could be stabilized, particularly given that even factings whose degrees of beauty are quite low can, if incorporated into works of art, contribute to experiences of calological delight. Two sections, two questions remain to be addressed in this subsection. One, are there simple physical factings? And two, is God simple? First, to one. Simple physical factings, if there are any, and whether or not there are, is a question to be addressed by physicists, would, according to structure and being, page 214, be minimally structured as self-identical. The constituents of the simple factings are, as so, as so structured, would be itself and its relation of identity to itself. The simple factings would be the unity of these two integral constituents, and the two could not be disproportionate to each other. The simple physical facting would therefore qualify as beautiful. Moreover, human beings could come to know such factings as they were articulated in theories. The appearance of such factings within the theories could, could catalogically delight human beings who came to understand those theories. As for two, first, given the principle of rank within being, see 8.3.6.2 below, God is beautiful. The question is, does God have constituents or is God simple? Tapto leaves this question open. If, according to the structural systematic philosophy's theory of God, when further developed, God has constituents, then God's beauty will consist in God's being an integral unity of proportionate constituents. If instead, according to that theory, God has no constituents, if, in general accordance with, among others, the theology of Aquinas, God is simple, then God's beauty will consist in God's being an integral unity without proportionate constituents, a unity because one, an integral because lack, lacking nothing God requires in order to be God. See Kovacs, 1974, pages 212 to 214. A final remark is in order. In Chapter 9, which presents, explains, and defends its essential definition of beauty, Kovacs, 1974, strongly distinguishes between material and immaterial beings, explicitly identifying as candidates immaterial beings and corresponding beauties, quote, the human act or virtue, moral beauty, spiritual substance, including the human soul, spiritual beauty, and God, divine beauty, end quote, and asserting that, quote, no immaterial being is directly knowable. This passage is symptomatic of an uncharacteristic defect in the argumentation of Kovach 1974. That is, it's only sporadic recognition of the fact that the beauty of works of literature is not material beauty. What makes a novel beauty, uh, when it's in print, is not the written letters on the page, but instead the semantic content uh, that the reader gets by viewing those letters, that is, by reading them. Tapto, in full agreement with structure and being on this issue, remedies this defect by according full-fledged ontological status to this directly knowable or experienceable form of immaterial beauty. It is directly knowable in Kovacs' sense because it is experienced 
most often when one reads. It does not emerge only as the conclusion of an argument. 7.6, degrees of beauty, C6. All factums are beautiful, but there are great differences in their degrees of beauty. As indicated above in various contexts, determining degrees of beauty is a matter of theoretical and, in some cases, scientific evaluation, including the theoretical evaluation made, perhaps generally implicitly, by the artist's work. An oversized nose might be disproportionate in a portrait, but proportionate in a caricature. A lengthy digression might be disproportionate in a detective novel, but proportionate in a comedy. In determining degrees of beauty, any evaluational theory embedded within the structural systematic philosophy's theoretical framework will consider centrally the factors of unity, integrity, and proportionality. 7.7, ugliness. The word ugly, ugliness, and their other conjugates enrich the vocabulary of Tapto's chirological theory, but Tapto's ontology does not include any instances of its being ugly that would exclude, from factings within which they were constituents, instances of its being beautiful. To the contrary, sentences including ugly or any of its conjugates express propositions of the likes of its being beautiful to a low degree. The semantic status of ugliness is, then, similar to that of shortness as clarifying height in the most common everyday frameworks. In such frameworks, one can intelligibly ask of any human being, how tall is she, and there will always be an answer. One cannot intelligibly ask how short is she, except in cases where the person in question has previously been identified as short. If the answer to how tall is she is four feet, then the person in question is short if she is an adult, but not if she is a two-year-old. Hence, in any evaluatory catalogical theory situated within the broader theoretical framework of the structural systematic philosophy, artworks or aspects of artworks could be criticized for being ugly, and aspects of artworks that in isolation from them would qualify as ugly could be identified as contributing to the beauty of the works in which they were situated. Worth noting as well is that phenomena commonly classified as ugly, even as repulsive, may also be instances of what is illuminatingly termed difficult beauty. Kovacs 1974 includes the following example from Corey 1947. Quote, If I look at a dead, rotting body as a human body, which it is not, I do not find it beautiful. But I learned a long time ago in the laboratories of the Johns Hopkins University to discern in the chemical changes of, of physiological deterioration, in the wonderful purifying work of the saprophytic bacteria, the emergence of a number of simple but unimpeachable unimpeachably beautiful entities. 7.8, catalogical disagreement. C8, that factings that on some occasions catalogically delight some human beings do not on all occasions delight all human beings is best explained by differences among those human beings, including differences between any human being on one occasion and that human being on other occasions. That there is widespread catalogical disagreement among human beings appears to be the most important reason given in support of subjectivisms about beauty. This disagreement is termed by, in Kovacs 1974, the negative aesthetic fact. As indicated above, attempts to, to identify properties common to all potentially beautiful items, rather than the relations unity, integrity, and proportionality, also presumably uh, support lead to doubt about objectivisms. Pepto, of course, acknowledges the existence of aesthetic or catalogical disagreement, but contends that it is better explained by its objectivism than by any subjectivism. 
that was beautiful or great, terrific, etc., uttered by S1, subject 1, as an everyday evaluation, more or less immediately following an experience of calological delight, can be understood as expressing the proposition that calologically delighted me. So understood, this sentence is wholly consistent with subject 2's that was horrible or lousy, tedious, boring, etc., uttered following subject 2's experience of the same phenomenon, if subject 2's utterance is understood as expressing the proposition that failed miserably to calologically delight me. Subject 1's delight is explained by the activation of the phenomenon's capacity to calologically delight, hence the phenomenon's beauty, and the activation of subject 1's capacity to be calologically delighted by beautiful phenomena. Explaining subjects to lack of delight does not require denying that the phenomenon is beautiful. What must be explained is why, when subject 2 engaged with the phenomenon, subject 2's capacity for being calologically delighted was not activated. Kobach 1974 presents 36 reasons why phenomena that calologically delight some human beings, thereby revealing themselves as beautiful, fail to calologically delight other human beings. Some are simple. For example, blind people cannot be catalogically delighted by visually beautiful phenomena. Deaf people cannot be catalogically delighted by the sounds of complex harmonies. And those who cannot understand a given language cannot be catalogically delighted by stories told in works of literature written in it. Some other reasons for catalogical disagreement are more complicated, but nevertheless easily explicable. Because being catalogically delighted by complex works of art often requires extensive exposure and education, those lacking such exposure and education will wholly predictably fail to appreciate the beauty of such works. Kovacs 1974 also emphasizes that uh, because human lives are short, one cannot become equally adept at understanding works of art in all genres. One must limit oneself to relatively few. Some disagreements arise, of course, not from different experiences, but from differing evaluations. Such disagreements are on a theoretical level and are explained either by evaluators relying on different theoretical frameworks or by their, rep their presenting different concretizations of a shared framework. Such, them such evaluations themselves as theoretical can be assessed comparatively.